Genesis chapter 17. Hope everybody's doing well. We're going to look at this together, continuing uh, tonight the saga of Abram, who tonight we'll recognize. Now we'll get his new name, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 17. So uh, we're going to look here together. I'm thankful for Jeremy. I'm thankful for uh, the prayers that we lift up on behalf of others. And I think that that is an important part of who we are, that we are ones that consider the fact that anywhere God's work is going on and the gospel is going forth, that's our people on our team, right? And so we want to continue to lift them up in prayer. Um, Genesis chapter 17, looking at this, uh, we have seen kind of the saga, what I call the saga of Abram. He has started out some many miles away uh, and the Lord calls him out of a land and says, I've got another place for you. Get up and go. And so in chapter 11, we saw that. He called Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he got up and went. And there, when he got to the place, the Lord gave him a promise. And that promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, has three parts to it. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And so you get this Three parts of that covenant, if you will, promise. And so then, quickly, we start to see testing take place. And sometimes Abram has been up to the task, and other times he's failed miserably. First, whenever famine comes into the land that God had promised him and told him to stay, he leaves and goes to Egypt, and there he fails as he doesn't trust or doesn't uh, hold, uh, believe that God's going to take care of him. So he tries to make provision on his own and makes a really dumb mistake by selling his wife into the house of Pharaoh. He gets out of that because God cares for him and still keeps him and sin goes back. And then remember, after he goes back, we find that him and Lot begin to separate and they have to separate and Abram makes the wise choice of staying in the land that God has provided this time. Whereas Lot looks to the land that's really nice, a lot more plush, has a lot more opportunity, but it's next to, it's next to Sodom, which is a wicked place and an evil place. And so he goes toward that. Abram does the right thing. And then we see how Abram is tested again. This time, he handles it well. He's tested because Lot is kidnapped by the armies of the kings. And Abram takes his 300 men and goes and kills and defeats four nations of kings, if you will. And God provides for him. Abram shows courage, takes Lot back. At this point, we see Abram has the choice between the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and righteousness and peace or the king of Sodom, and Abram makes the right choice there, saying, I won't even you know, give the sandal to my shoe to Sodom, but to this one who's the king of peace, he offers up the sacrifices and worships God. But not long after that, we see after that scene, God comes back and he even redefines or more clearly states the covenant he made in chapter 12 and how through this covenant, it's going to be the sands of the seashore that will be provided for you in this promise. And how is he going to do it? This is chapter 15. How is he going to do it? God is the one who passes through the animals that have been cut in half, if you remember. God is the one who says, if this covenant is not kept, I will pay the price myself. Pointing us again, of course, to how God will pay the price to keep the promises through his son, Jesus Christ. 
chapter 16 then, we saw even after God had done that, we saw that Abraham failed another test in believing because some years had passed. And the very nature of the promise of God required for Abraham to have a son. But yet Abram and Sarah could not have children and up to that point at 86 years old had not had any children. And so they took matters into their own hands and believed they could settle this. And Abram uh, had a child with, his, uh, with Sarai's servant, Hagar. And we saw the difficulty with that and what that raised up. And so you see this saga. We've talked about this. It's kind of been an up and down little drama of Abram's life as he's moving through. And tonight in chapter 17, we're going to see the Lord's going to come back again. And the Lord is going to again closely, even, even more tightly, define the promise that he has made with Abraham. He's going to define that promise and how he is going to fulfill it. And so these scenes of how God continually shows his promise and how he continually tells Abraham, I will do this. And we're going to see that again tonight in chapter 17. So chapter 17, verse 1 when Abram was 99 years old. Now, recognize this is almost some 25 years from when he was called out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. Also recognize, please, that there's this shift after Babel, all right? There's this shift after Babel. Before Babel, we saw, and in Babel in, in Genesis chapter 11, before Babel, back before the flood, uh, we saw how people lived a much longer time, right? We saw how they lived 900 years for some of them, and Methuselah being the oldest one, 969. That time has now passed on this side of the flood. Does that make sense to everybody? So now when we're looking at our passages, it is right for us to recognize that 99 years old is like 99 years old today, basically. So it's, 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 it's similar here. So we, this is not some sense in which, you know, he's going to live to be 100, uh, 900 years. This is more of a sense in which this is actually like times a day. And you'll see some live to be 120 and others, but it still puts it in more of a contemporary context for us for age. That's why you have Abram and Sarah laughing at God when they said they're about to have a kid, you know. Uh, at 99 or some older age, this is nonsense. We've been here forever. We haven't had any children, and so it becomes laughable. But what we'll see this week is the same thing. And, and, and if you're here this Sunday, and you know, I don't want to tip you off to what's coming Sunday because if you use that excuse not to come, then the Lord knows your heart. <laughs> but it's the same thing that runs throughout Scripture over and over again is that God continually gets us to a place where there has to be some radical act of God to fulfill what's about to happen. It looks like it is hopeless. It looks like there's no way this could take place. It looks like this is done. How in the world is, it, how in the world is Abraham and Sarah going to have a kid at 99 years old, at 100 years old, if you will? There's no way this can happen. It only can be of God. And remember, like we talked about last, last week, the main character of Scripture is God. And so we're getting to that place. We'll see that, by the way, in Isaiah chapter 11 is my point. We'll see again in Isaiah chapter 11 where God has brought judgment and there's nothing but a dead stump left. And out of that dead stump, when there seemingly can be no life, comes a shoot that'll come up. 
And that's the whole point of Isaiah. And so we get to this place here in chapter 17 of Genesis. They are 99 years old. God has made a promise. Will he keep the promise? Maybe, far as we know, Abram has not heard from God for the last 13 years. Because the end of chapter 16 says he was 86 years old when that incident happened. But now God speaks again to Abram some 13 years later at 99 years old. And when it's seemingly impossible, God is going to reiterate his promise again. Re-up his promise again. So at 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and, my, and may multiply you greatly. Now, a couple things about this passage. First of all, this idea of walking before God, we've seen this before, right? Uh, Enoch is the one in chapter 5 who walked before God and God took him. He walked with God. The idea of walking with God is an idea of being obedient to him. It's the idea of being obedient to him. So God is saying to Abram, I'm God, walk before me and be blameless. Be obedient, follow after me, be faithful that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Again, the proper response whenever we're confronted to God is not ecstatic craziness, but falling on our face before him in worship. Falling down before him in worship. And anytime God appears in scripture, you see that that is the reaction that people have. So Abram hears the Lord's voice. He falls before him in worship. And God said, uh, some translations give this in verse 4, as for me. God says, as for me. Uh, this translation, ESV says, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, this word covenant means promise, but it's even deeper here of a promise. Remember chapter 15, whenever you have a covenant with someone, you would seal that covenant. Remember how they sealed it in chapter 15. They took the, the heifer and they took the, the, the birds and they took the goat and they cut it in half, split them over against each other, and you walk through to seal that covenant as a blood covenant. Basically saying, if I don't keep this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. So it's deeper even. It's more even than just a promise. It is a promise. But there's something even greater here. It's a promise with, with, with some even deeper consequences, if not kept. And so the Lord's saying, I'm making a covenant with you. The God of the universe, God Almighty, as this passage says, is making a covenant with man. And when God makes a covenant, we talked about this before, there's three parts to it. First, God's covenant is unilateral. It's him that's doing this. God is not coming here for negotiations. He's not coming here to say, let's talk about this and have a bilateral covenant. You tell me what you want. I'll tell you what I want. No, God makes the stipulations in his promises. Does that make sense to everybody? His covenant is unilateral. His covenant is eternal. When God makes a promise, he is bound to keep it for how long? Forever. If he doesn't, then he's gone back on his promise, and the moment he's gone back on his promise, he has disqualified himself as God. And so God makes a promise. It is an eternal promise because God is eternal. He is forever. So he's saying, I'm not coming. This isn't a covenant we're going to bargain for here. 
This is me making the covenant with you. I'll set the terms. And this covenant, this promise is eternal. It's an eternal covenant. And not only that, we see that it is gracious. And in this, God's covenant, unilateral, eternal, and gracious, in this, we see the first part of this. God says, as for me, here's my part, basically. Here's what I will do. In verse 4, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Notice here that he says, you shall be the father of a multitude of what? Nations, plural. Abraham here, remember, I said this in chapter 12, the promises of God for the people of God was always to include who? The nations. And so here he says, you'll be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. So on that note, I am now relieved and I know how I'm going to have to say Abram, but I can say Abraham every time and be right. And now we get these seven, I think it's seven I wills or eyes here. Listen, this is God Almighty talking. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you, give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Do you see these promises? I mean, this is pretty intense. This is the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. This is this is the God who holds everything in his hand, sustains everything by the word of his mouth, right? This is the God who causes me and you to breathe and our hearts to beat. This is God sovereign over all things, making a promise to Abraham. Abraham, oh, see, I can say it. <laughs> making a promise to Abraham, and he uses seven I am statements or I will statements here. I will make you great. I will give you a land. I will bless you. I will make you prosperous. If that's the case, what I'm saying to you is just as sure as you read the words on the paper, God's promises will come true. Or, or he's not God. In other words, what you have to understand is this is putting it all on the line, right? This is saying for God, this is what I'm going to do. And if he doesn't do it, then he has gone back on his word. And if he goes back on his word, then is he really worthy of our worship? And so God says, I will do these things. This is what, as for me, here is what I am going to do. Notice then next in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you. Y'all see that? God's saying in the first part, as for me, here's what I'm going to do. The second part turns around. He says, as for you, here's what you're going to do. Now, God is not saying that his will and what he does is dependent on Abraham's action. That's not what's happening here. He's not saying that I will do this if you do that. God is sovereign. 
He is not dependent on us in any way to keep his promises or his word. Thank God he's not. In fact, when you read the scriptures, you see that in many ways, in many places, it looks as if God's word or will cannot be accomplished because of people's own foolishness and ignorance, right? But yet he does every single time. And like I've said to you before, and I'll say it again now because I like this illustration. When Jesus died on the cross... God wasn't in heaven going, shoo, I'm glad that plan worked. When they didn't break any of his bones on the cross, like Psalm 22 said, he wasn't up there going, whew, I'm glad they didn't hit his leg with a hammer, you know. God made promises, and just as sure as those promises were made, those promises were secured. Yet while, while those promises are made by God and he carried them out through the plans, even the wicked plans of men, what we also recognize is that we have a responsibility over against his sovereignty. With it. It goes together. And so what he says is, because I am making a covenant with you, because I am doing something, then you have to respond to me. In other words, when God does something, there's always a response that has to follow. And so God is saying, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you everything I promised. And here's what you're going to do. There has to be a response. There has to be a response. As for God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You shall be faithful. The response for you, Abraham, to my promises is for you to be faithful and keep my covenant. You shall keep my covenant. You shall be faithful. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Recognize that God is making a, a uh, eternal covenant promise here. So it doesn't just include, include Abraham. It includes all of the offspring after him. It includes those who come after Abraham. And Father Abraham had... Many sons. Y'all can sing it if you want to, but later. All of them will be included. And so not only this, Abraham, it's you and your offspring, all of them. So he says then, every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, I have not looked forward to talking about circumcision because I might say something silly and stupid, okay? And it may get a little queasy, but we're going to work through this. All right, we're going to work through this to see exactly what's going on, hopefully. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign. Notice that word, circle that word, a sign, a sign of the covenant, of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, with your, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. By the way, notice how this is bringing in even those outside here that are in your household and family, bringing them into the promises. So they shall be circumcised. Show shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
Now, so what God is doing is God is saying all of these I wills. I'm going to establish my covenant. I'm going to make you great. I will make you into nations. Kings will come from you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. Now, notice in the scriptures, God makes promises. And I've said this from the beginning. The promises of God aren't null and void as you go on. They don't replace each other. They continue. And what God does is he even brings into more focus his promises with each passage of scripture. More clarity is given. And so God is here even doubling down at Abraham, who's 99 years old. He says to him, at 99 years old, he has no children through Sarai, right? He has none that could be his offspring up to this point. We'll see this. He has none, but he says to him, not only are you going to have kids, you're going to be the father of many nations. Not only are you going to have kids, you kings will come from you, right? Not only that, you're going to be the father of many nations, and it will be generation after generation after generation that I will bless. So at 99 years old, God doubles down on his promise with Abraham. He changes his name and says, you shall be the father of many. And so here, God is doubling down on the promises and saying, I'm going to do this. And not only that, I'm going to give you a sign that for all the generations after you will come as a testimony that you belong to me of this covenant promise I've made. All of them after you will be a testimony of it. And that sign will be circumcision. Why will it be circumcision? Now, there's ample reasons out there that people do give. You can find many. I'm just going to give you a couple that I think maybe work throughout Scripture and you can find here in the text. I mean, ultimately, we know what circumcision is. I, I, if, if you need someone to explain to you what circumcision is, I'll give you all five minutes amongst the table. And the smartest one amongst you can go ahead and tell each other, right? Later. Here, circumcision, really through the reproductive organ of the male, right, is going to demonstrate the passing on even of this promise from generation to generation. Here, this idea of circumcision is the removal of flesh, a removal of flesh and how God is cutting out, and I'm using his language here when he says, you shall be cut off or you shall be cut out of, in Exodus 19, cutting out a special people for himself that belong to him, that are signs of this promise that God has made. And so this will mark his people off as his. This will be the sign to all the other nations that they belong to him. Remember, remember, uh, I've always thought this was funny. I asked this question, and man, last week, we, I was teaching. Jeremy's back there. He's probably not listening to me. Hey, Jeremy, you waving? We were teaching, and I was responsible for the recording. So if you went back to hear it last week's and it's not on there, that's my fault because I didn't record it accidentally. I said, man, I got it. Done. And it didn't work. I told Jeremy, tonight may be the night I need to forget to record this, okay? That's what might need to happen. Um, cause making, making this uh, mistake, but I remember being young and y'all remember Joshua, right? Y'all remember Joshua? They send some spies into Jericho. Y'all remember this? Who, who did they send the spies to? 
Rahab met up with him. What was Rahab? How did Rahab know these two men were Hebrews? I remember asking that question to the sweet little old teacher back in discipleship training. So how did he? How did she know they were Hebrews? I mean, all of them are from that area. Was it? Was it something going? And boy, her face turned red and said, "You need to ask your dad." My dad was the preacher. I knew at that point I'm not asking dad. I don't think I want to get in that conversation yet. We see this passage then, and we go, "What is this? This is how God desires." Obviously, through the male reproductive organ to demonstrate the passing on from generation to generation. Obviously, he's showing this way to mark off his people as his own. A sign, as it says, of his promise. That's what it's there to do. And that's what it seems like becomes the point here for the Lord. I want every generation to be testified to that I've made a promise. And here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to do it. And if you don't do this, what does it say down there in verse 14? Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off, pun, from his people, for he has forsaken my covenant. It was a sign of obedience. If you're going to walk before me, then you must practice this act of circumcision as a testimony that you know the promise that God has made and you believe it, right? To the parents. Parents, you know the promise God has made and you believe it. And this is what marks off the people of God. This is what marks them off as the people of God. So ultimately, circumcision becomes a testimony, a sign of the covenant promises of God for his people and marks them off as the people of God. Marks them off as that. It shows, as every time you practice it, it shows that you believe in the promises. It shows you trust that it's coming to generation to generation, right? It shows those things. Now, what we have here, though, is as we look at the scriptures, remember, the scriptures are laid out in such a way as to give us a, a piece of revelation, and then it's called, what you know, it, it lays it out as we continue. So it's progressive revelation. You get this piece. So remember, Genesis 3.15, God says he's going to crush the serpent's head. But he doesn't say he's going to crush the serpent's head by the Messiah who is Jesus Christ who's going to come and die on the cross and put him to death, right? It doesn't say that. It just says he's going to crush the serpent's head. We find that out as we go along. How is he going to do it? How is he going to crush the serpent's head? We're even seeing here now that we're following the story of the serpent crusher even here in Genesis chapter 17. How God is going to carve out, uh, pun a little bit, how he's going to carve out a people for himself, a people for himself that he is going to bring about salvation and keep his promises. We're seeing how this is laying it out. But what we see here is even as we come here in Genesis 17, we don't have the complete revelation. The good part for us is we do have it now in God's word. And so in that, we practice a little bit of what we call hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics is, is, is one of the more important things we do. How do you understand and apply the scriptures? How do you understand and apply the scriptures? The word for hermeneutics comes from Luke chapter 24, a passage I've mentioned before, where it talks about Jesus walking with the two disciples. 
and he explained to them the word, saying that everything was about him, right? He's walking with those two on the road to Emmaus. It comes from that Greek word, to explain or understand. And so that hermeneia is the word. So hermeneutics is how do you understand the scriptures and apply them. And so when you look at this, it takes some hermeneutics. In the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, we have a lot of signs, right? You have a lot of signs that are given. Here the covenant uh, sign is circumcision, that God has made a promise, you're going to be faithful, your demonstration of faithfulness will be circumcision of every male child on the eighth day. Marking you off as God's people. Demonstrating that you've been, you've been shaped by him and pulled out by him as his possession. And he even says that, I will be their God. Not only are you his possession, he is your possession. And so here is that sign that demonstrates you believe in the promises of God and have been set apart for him. So what is that sign then in the New Testament? is one of the major discussions and or arguments among believers today. In fact, how you understand this in some ways determines whether or not you're a Baptist. Whether or not you're a Baptist. Why? You can pick up any commentary. I find it interesting when I read this because I'll read some Presbyterians and some others. When you come to Genesis 17, they don't even talk about circumcision and the covenant, they go straight to why circumcision is equated with baptism. So that's why we baptize, sprinkle, by the way, I'm a good Baptist. That's why we sprinkle babies, right? They connect it here because they did this. And their argument simply is this, I think. Their argument simply saying, so what you would do is you would circumcise your male child on the eighth day, bringing them into the covenant relationship with God. You would do this. And so we now, as New Testament Christians, we sprinkle, or they call it baptism. The word baptizo means to immerse. I'm sticking with it. So they sprinkle, they sprinkle their infants on the eighth day, roughly. They sprinkle them on the, if the eighth day falls on Sunday. They sprinkle them on the eighth day, right? And then that marks them off as part of the covenant community of God. So any tradition that sprinkles called pedo-baptism infants, somewhat are going to take circumcision as the sign that is fulfilled by New Testament baptism. There's a couple problems with that hermeneutically, I believe. In other words, I'm a good Baptist. The problem is, hermeneutically in Scripture, you do not fulfill a sign with another sign. In other words, a sign is not fulfilled by another sign. It's not just added on to by another sign. So you say, Josh, what is this that we're doing? So I'm going to ask you to flip with me. Somebody said something about me saying the word flip. Y'all don't like that word? Flip with me in your Bible? Somebody, it's like whenever, you remember in the old days, my granddad, when you had the car radio and they had those buttons you would push, he would always say, mash that button. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And I thought that was right. So flip with me to Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to just go ahead and skip to Colossians 2 to give what I'm telling you in the New Testament argument. Then we'll come back and build a little bit more on this. Paul is talking in Colossians. Now, understand who Paul is. Paul, as it says, is the Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippines. Y'all know, uh, Philippines. Philippians. That was a different Paul that went to the Philippines. 
Paul is the Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he has kept the law from his birth. He was a Benjaminite. And, and, and if you don't know, remember, the tribe of Benjamin went right along with the tribe of Judah. So there was 12 tribes. The 10 tribes to the north turned apostate early and left out. But Judah, who we're talking about with Isaiah, Judah was that tribe in the south. And Benjamin was right there with Judah. And Benjamin was one of the smallest of tribes and one of the purest that could testify to their genealogies going back. And so here, Paul's saying, I was, a, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was of the pure. I was a Hebrew. I did it all. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul was the one who parents made sure everything was done right. And so this is the Apostle Paul. What happened to the Apostle Paul? Because he was so zealous for his Jewish heritage, he was so zealous for it that he was willing to put anybody to death that would dare question it or try to undermine it. He believed Jesus was the one questioning it and trying to undermine it. And anybody that was preaching Jesus was questioning it and trying to undermine it. So therefore, Paul had the arrest papers in his pocket and sometimes said, go ahead and kill him, oversaw the stoning of Stephen and was headed to Damascus to do some more, right? Paul was so zealous for this, so zealous for that circumcision on the eighth day. He was so zealous for this that he was willing to put people... What happened to Paul? Y'all know. On the way to Damascus, who did he meet? Jesus. Face to face. And Paul couldn't even see after that. And so Paul changed his understanding here to say, here's what really matters. And so Paul is writing now to the Colossians. And listen to what Paul says. This is really profound for this guy. Paul's writing in chapter 2. And he says in verse... Hold on, let me pull out the glasses. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, so Christ is the antecedent here, for in Him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now he's speaking here to the Colossian believers. Some could be Gentiles and some could be Jews. Remember what Paul's practice was when he went into a city. Where would he go first? He would go into the synagogue and proclaim the Messiah. And so Paul says, make sure you don't get taken away by anything. You'll be filled in Christ who's the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised. Y'all get this? In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Paul is immediately saying that the circumcision that you have received is not a physical circumcision. This, this was not a physical circumcision. It was made without hands. So he's saying this was not something done to you by a priest or a doctor with a flint knife. This is you without hand, a physical circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. Do y'all know Paul's doctrine of the flesh? What was the flesh equated to with Paul? Sin. So for him, circumcision becomes a picture that whenever we repent before God, Flesh is removed, right? Our sinful self. So he says this. 
He says, made without hands by the circumcision of body of the flesh. Then he goes in, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What is the circumcision of Christ? I would make the argument here of what Paul is saying is that the circumcision of Christ is his death on the cross. On the cross, Christ took on flesh and did what? Put it to death. Ripped it off, if you will. Christ took it on and through his circumcision made, now you can be circumcised with the circumcision that really matters, not made by hands, not made by hands, but the spiritual circumcision. And what does that spiritual circumcision do? It sets you apart as the people of God. In other words, what is the marker in Josh Powell's life that I belong to God? Not physical circumcision. Circumcision of the heart, the scripture says. What sets you apart is that your heart has been circumcised before God. That he has removed the fleshly heart and he has given you a new heart that's replaced it. What sets you apart is a circumcision of the heart, he says. And in this, we find that in Christ. And so Paul is going to make an argument over in Romans chapter 2. He's going to make an argument that says, For circumcision of deed is of value if you obey the law. Circumcision is tied to the law. The law is tied to the covenant promises of God. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, writ, who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is, circum, nor is circumcision outward or physical. But verse 29 he says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of what? The heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. And by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, God does not worry about the physical appearance. We've heard that before with David. He's worried ultimately about the condition of your heart. The condition of your heart. The sign is circumcision. The fulfillment is circumcision of the heart. And here's why I'm a Baptist, right? Because baptism does not equate to circumcision in the Old Testament. Baptism is a new sign, a new testimony of obedience and following after the Lord. The fulfillment of circumcision in the Old Testament is circumcision of the heart created by the Holy Spirit, not by human hands. That's the fulfillment of it. And so for me, circumcision of the heart comes based upon your belief in the promises of God, and therefore, baptism comes because you have believed the promises of God and your heart has been circumcised. It's an outward sign of a physical, of an inward change, right? And so ultimately, we see this in this progress. Now, before I say that's just a New Testament thing, turn back with me to Deuteronomy. This is the same section of Scripture, the Torah, the law. It's the same section of Scripture that Moses is writing. And, and oftentimes we look at this and we, people may say, well, circumcision, that's what did it. But notice what Moses says in the same context as Genesis chapter 17 in some ways. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 
Sometimes I get ahead of myself and I don't call out what chapter or verse, but y'all just hold on. Don't say anything. Then embarrass me. He says in verse 12, And now, Israel, chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? God has been faithful. I will, I will, I will, right? Y'all saw that in chapter 17? Now, as for you, what does he require of you? He requires you to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth will, and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Moses is encouraging the people. This is after he has gotten the new tablets of stone. Y'all remember what happened to the first tablets? He crashed them because of their sinfulness and rebellion. But now the Lord has redone these and he's got his new tablets of stone. And now the Lord says, here's what I desire from you. Here is my law. We talked about the, new, we talked about the Ten Commandments on Sunday mornings, right? God saved them. And because he saved them, here's what he expects them to do and how he expects them to live. Here's what I've done for you. I've redeemed you. I'm walking you by the hand all the way back to the promised land that I gave to you. And I am and I will give to you again. I'm walking you by hand all the way there. All of this I have done. And here's what I require of you. It's not as if God's promises are dependent upon what they do, remember. But God's promises will lead them to do what is right. And here's what I require of you. I want you to love me. I want you to serve me. I want you to be faithful. I want you to keep my commands. I want you to demonstrate with your heart your desire to follow after me with your life. I want this from you. All that I have done, here's what I want from you. And then look at what he says in verse 16. This didn't just come from Paul. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. No longer be stubborn. In other words, the Lord is saying, don't reject me anymore. Circumcise the foreskin of what? What matters is your heart. What matters before God is where is your heart? Where is your heart? So here he says, Show us and demonstrate, not the physical circumcision that really matters, but the circumcision of your heart. Demonstrate this. Show us this. Let me see that, the Lord says. Why? Because the Lord doesn't look on the outward, but on the inner. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Let me see a couple of these here. talking about repentance and forgiveness. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul? Here, that didn't, Jesus is not just picking that up and coming up with something new, right? He's bringing you back to the promise of God from the beginning. God will care for you. He's made promise. And in Jesus... What's really happening through the life and death and resurrection of Christ is God is keeping the promises he even made back to Abraham. And he says, so circumcise your heart. 
Circumcise your heart then. Turn your heart toward me. What matters in your worship is the condition of your heart. What matters in your obedience is the condition of your heart. What's going to display a life that you believe the promises of God is a heart that is devoted to God. That's what he's getting at. Turn with me to Jeremiah. First chapter 4, I believe. Jeremiah the prophet. Calling the people to repentance. Break up, verse chapter 4, verse 2nd, last, uh, well, verse 3. For thus the Lord, thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like a fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Or flip over with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah states that there's coming a day where there'll be a new covenant. And again, I would make the argument that this new covenant is not superseding or taking the place of the old covenant, but fulfilling it. Fulfilling it. And he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In other words, the Lord says, In my new covenant, what's going to matter is your heart. That's what's going to matter. That's what's going to mark you off as my people. That in your heart, you know God. Nobody's got to teach you who God is or what he's done. Nobody's got to do it because when your heart's been changed, the spirit dwells within you, you know him. You know him and you know his requirements of you. Last place, flip with me to Galatians chapter 3. Here in Galatians 3, the apostle Paul is writing about the promises made to Abraham. And how is it that Abraham's offspring are going to be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky? How is it, is he going to be Abraham, the father of many nations? The father of many nations. It's because here he's going to say, what is it that makes them a part of Abraham's offspring? Looking for a good place to start here because all of this is, is, is good. He writes, verse 7 of chapter 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice what he says. Who were Abraham's children? Those who believe in the promise. Not blood necessarily. Not ones who follow blood and can draw their lineage back to Abraham. But those who believe in the promise, just as Abraham did. 
Those are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. In other words, Christ didn't come to nullify the promise to Abraham. He came to fulfill it. From the very beginning, the promise was that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And his offspring would be like the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. And why is this the case? Because Christ didn't come to strike out the promise and bring a new one. Christ came to fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham. He came to fulfill it. And so he says, Christ in Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, may come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham. His point again is, this is not changing the promises that were made to Abraham. It's fulfilling it. No one is coming in and changing these things after they've been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, Paul's getting technical here, but he wants to make a point. Who is it made to? His offspring. It does not say, this is Paul, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, who is Christ. The promises of God made to Abraham are fulfilled by the offspring of Abraham, who is Christ. And anyone who believes in faith are children of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was justified, not because he was circumcised ultimately, but because God made a promise to him and he believed that promise. And every single one of us in this room, you know why we're saved? Because God's made a promise to us and we believe it. And that promise is that if you trust in my son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for you, took your sin upon himself and crushed it and rose again, if you trust in him, you will have everlasting life. That's a promise, right? And we believe it. And we're justified by it. Just as Abraham believed the promise of God and because of his belief, he was justified. So we believe in the promises of God. Abraham believed in the ones looking forward. We're believing in the ones that already has been accomplished for us, Christ. It's not nullifying that promise. It's fulfilling it. Fulfilling it. So if you flip over, I told y'all Galatians 3 would be last, but I've got two minutes and five seconds. <laughs> chapter 6 of Galatians. I love chapter 6. Go ahead and underline it. If it's somebody else's Bible, highlight it and underline it. But far be it from me, Paul says, to boast. I'm not going to brag anymore on the fact that I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not going to brag anymore on the fact that I was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not going to brag anymore that I studied under the brightest of scholars. 
I'm not going to brag anymore on any of the credentials that I have. It does not matter what diplomas are hanging on my wall. It does not matter ultimately who my parents were finally and completely. Paul says, I'm not bragging on any of that. I only boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. That's what I brag on. That's my boast. That's my claim. What Christ did for me on his cross. And listen to what he says. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Here is our peace and our mercy that Christ Jesus has died for us, fulfilling the promises of God that he has made for all time. So every promise is found answered in Christ. Yes and amen. So Paul says, I'm not bragging in any of my credentials. I'm not bragging on circumcision or uncircumcision. What I'm telling you is I know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in that, the promises have been kept. And that's what I believe. That's what makes me a child of God. What marks us off as a child of God is the fact that we believe and our hearts have been changed by God. We believe and our hearts have been circumcised, as Paul says, not by the circumcision made by hands, but by the circumcision of God through his spirit in our hearts and our lives. And our life then becomes a testimony of our changed heart, of our changed heart. God has said from the beginning, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he has. Now, just like he said to Abraham, as for you, here's what you are to do. And so help us tonight, Lord, to hear that as for you. And be faithful. Be faithful as his children to pursue after him because he has faithfully come after us. We ask God and my prayer is that God would change our lives, circumcise the hearts of those who do not believe so that they would hear the gospel and believe. And that's our desire here. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your good word to us tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness to always keep the promises. And even as we continue through these passages in Genesis and on through your word, we will never find a time and a spot that you have not been faithful to keep your promises. And God, as we live our life, the testimony of every believer in this room is that you have always been faithful and you always will. So God, help us. Help us to live in light of your faithfulness as a people devoted to your word, your truth, as a people who believe in your promises so our lives look like it. Help us in that, Father. For your name and for your glory, help us to live. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all. Sunday morning. We do have baptism this coming Sunday morning, I believe. Hey, 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 hey. See y'all Sunday morning.